You know, one of my strange thrills as a little kid, believe it or not, were those magic grow capsules. Remember those weird things? Magic grow capsules. There were these little tiny capsule pill things, roughly about the size of an aspirin, and yet, and yet contained in these magic grow capsules was a strange power. Remember, these are not the kind of pills that you ingest, but rather you fill the sink with water, you throw the pills in the sink, and you minutes and minutes these things would come alive. The shell of the capsule would dissolve, and all of a sudden out of the capsule a giant foam dinosaur would appear, or space creature, or a spaceship, or a spider, or a race car, or whatever, and you see the thrill of it all, especially for a, a little kid, a bored little kid apparently, was that you would watch these shapes 10 to 20 times the size of the capsule emerge, and it just didn't seem possible that you could get all of that out of this one tiny little capsule. What am I doing? That was maybe a lame segue for a sermon. Probably was. My point is this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 is a magic grow capsule of holy truth. Meaning it's a tiny little capsule of just one verse, just one single solitary verse, and yet contained in that verse is a massive theology of salvation. In this verse is loaded with such glorious salvation realities that you would almost not believe that you can get all of those things out of just one verse, and yet you can because they're there, and for the good of your own souls, we're going to look at every single one of those realities. This is crucial. This one verse right here that we're going to spend all of our morning in, this is so crucial to John's theology. This is so crucial to the entire purpose of the letter. And it is so crucial that we need to take an entire Sunday sermon to throw it in the sink and watch it unfold majesty before our eyes. And yet the twist is, the twist about this one single magic grow capsule that you're about to see is that you're going to be tempted to believe that you already know and believe everything that it says. And in one sense, that's true. You do. You, you, everything this verse contains and teaches, you do believe. You do already know. You can already explain with some level of expertise. There are no surprises here. And yet, and yet, like any magic grow capsule, there's more here than meets the eye. There's more to see here. There's more to unfold here. There's, there's more to be discovered in the capsule of this one single tiny little verse. And that's exactly where we're going this morning. And the reason why, the reason why this verse is so crucial and so worth our time, because you understand in this verse is found the very purpose of John's letter. Why he put pen to paper, wrote it, folded it, put it in an envelope, licked it, and sealed it, and sent it to these churches was clear and unmistakable. It's contained in this verse. And here is the verse. Here's where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. Verse 13, John says, these things I wrote to you. Why, John? Why did you write this? So that you who believe in the Son of God would know that you have eternal life. That's the verse right there. The magic grow 
capsule they're going to watch unfold before our, before our very eyes. And although seemingly simple on the surface, in reality, it is glorious and profound. In this verse is contained literally an ocean of truth, the depths of which exceed the abilities of mere human comprehension. And so to prepare you for what you're about to hear this morning, let me ask you a series of questions, four questions, in fact, each of which come from the text. Number one, do you know what it means to believe? Like if you had to define what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, how exactly would you define what that means? What does it mean to believe in Christ? Question one. Number two, if you claim to believe in Jesus Christ, the question then becomes, how then do you know that your faith is real? What I mean is if someone really has authentic, saving faith in Jesus Christ, how then does that faith reveal itself in their lives? What are the signs? What is the evidence of authentic, saving faith? That's the question. Question three. Do you know in whom you are called to believe? I mean, I know that you know that it's Christ, but the question becomes, what is it? Do you know what it is about Christ that you should and must believe to gain eternal life? Question four, final question. I know you know that faith in Christ results in eternal life, but the question becomes, do you know what eternal life actually is and why it's worth giving everything up for? Those are the questions. That's where we're going. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from this one verse, four simple glories. Four simple glories of saving faith that you must comprehend for bold assurance and unshakable joy. Four simple glories of saving faith that you must comprehend for bold assurance an unshakable joy, simple. And, and the reason why I call these simple glories because on the surface they seem simple and easy, but really, in reality, they are glorious and profound. And so simple glory, number one, is this. Number one, the activity of faith. The activity of faith, which raises the question, what does it mean to believe? Now, you have not forgotten, I hope, what John is doing here in chapter 5. This final chapter is given entirely to explaining, unfolding what it means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, in this chapter, John gives us the nature, the essence, the definition, the object, the outcome of our faith. In this chapter, he tells us what faith is, what it means, how you got it, what you should believe, and how you know what you believe is true. It's all here in 1 John chapter 5. You see, John is not about to let us use one of the most important words in the Christian life, like faith, and not know exactly what it means. That's chapter 5. And again, what makes verse 13 so significant, and so worthy of its own sermon, is again, is that John defines in this verse why it is he wrote this letter in the first place. Look what he says. He, he, here's why John just had to write this letter. He says, these things I wrote to you. Why, John? So that you who believe in the name of the Son of God would know that you have eternal life. I mean, do you hear that? 
confidence is the issue. Assurance is the issue for John. Knowing for certain that you do, in fact, have eternal life is why John said he wrote these things. I mean, everything contained in this letter. The thesis on the incarnation in chapter 1. The five probing tests in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. The glorious resume of Christ in chapter 2. The bare-knuckled interrogation about obedience in chapter 2. Everything he says about loving other people in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Everything he says about the new birth. All of the theology. The probing questions about whether you love the world or the things in the world. Were all designed to give you assurance that your faith was authentic and real. Not that John took it easy on us. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't avoid saying hard things because he has zero interest in giving assurance to people who shouldn't have it. I mean, don't, get me wrong, don't get me wrong, this, this letter was filled with love, lots and lots of love to be sure, but it was also filled with but it's the kind of love with knuckles and teeth and, and the willingness to be brutally honest and blunt, which when it comes to matters like eternal life is exactly what we need. But it's absolutely clear here in 1 John and everywhere else in the Bible that the non-negotiable condition for obtaining eternal life is that we must believe in Jesus Christ. We must believe in the name of the Son of God. But you see, the issue is whatever faith is, whatever faith means, is the issue that we have got to get to the bottom of this morning. In other words, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ and how exactly does faith work? What I mean is, how is what you believe, how does what you believe in your own mind change anything about the status of your soul? I mean, what is this thing called saving faith and what does it mean to believe? And we know, you know, that faith is not merely believing in something that you can't see. Nor is faith mere intellectual agreement with a set of historical facts. I mean, there are historical facts and you have got to believe them but it's not only that, because even the demons believe and tremble. So biblically, theologically, what does it mean? What is faith and what does it mean to believe in Christ? Well, faith is what Christ explained, defined in Luke 9, 23, when he looked at a crowd of people right in the eyes and he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's faith. It's what Paul said in Philippians 3.8 when he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. That is faith. Or, if you want to squish it all together to believe in Christ, get this now, this is in your notes, to believe in Christ means all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes four things to you. One, your deepest treasure. Two, your ultimate significance. Three, your consuming identity. And four, your highest allegiance. That's what it means to believe in Christ. 
I'm going to say that again. You really need to feel this. To believe in Christ, to become a Christian, in other words, means that all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes four things. Your deepest treasure, your ultimate significance, your consuming identity, your highest allegiance. In other words, he satisfies you, he defines you, he rules you, and he owns you by his blood. You see, faith is not a work with which we can barter with God for salvation. No, faith is the broken and hearted admission that you were bankrupt. And that the only contribution we had to our own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. Which is, faith is not just a change of opinion. Get this, it is a God-awakened union with Christ by the Spirit, through the Word, whereby all of the innumerable salvation blessings bought with His blood get transferred to our bankrupt spiritual bank account. That is faith. That's the essence of a simple glory. And so when John talks about believing in the Son of God, this is exactly what he means. This is exactly what he's talking about. And so the question becomes to you this morning, is this the kind of faith that you possess? In other words, is Christ your deepest treasure? Is he your ultimate significance? Is he your consuming identity? Is he your highest allegiance? Do you have the kind of cross-taking, world-forsaking, give-everything kind of faith that bows to the king in thirsty submission? that yields to him as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure? Is that the kind of faith that you possess? I'm, I'm not asking if you never struggle or sin. I'm not asking if your faith does not at, does not at times fluctuate or wane. I'm not asking if the life of faith isn't hard. Or it doesn't feel like a war waged and a battle to the death. I'm not asking if it feels like that. Because if you're doing it right, that's exactly what it feels like. What I'm asking is, what I'm asking is, when you are all alone by yourself and no one can see you except God, do you cling to Christ with kung fu grip intensity? What I'm asking is, is he a treasure to you? Is he appealing to you? Is he increasingly beautiful to your soul is what I'm asking. Or, or do you actually think that he kind of gets in the way of what you think will make you happy? You hear the difference? You see, fakey faith merely finds Christ to be useful. Saving faith finds Christ to be beautiful, which is the faith that you possess. Which brings us to simple glory number two. Simple glory number two, the certainty of faith. The certainty of faith, which asks the question, how can we be sure that eternal life is ours? Another way to ask the question is, how can we be certain that our faith in Christ is real? 
Because John believes that we can know. He is certain that we can be sure. Look what he says at verse 13. He says, these things I wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you would know. You would know with absolute certainty and unshakable joy that you have eternal life. Which means, if you're wondering, yes, yes, for my second point, I'm going to exposit one word. I'm going to preach on the word know, K-N-O-W, that you would know that you have eternal life. Because see, what John means by know is confidence. He means assurance. Certainty that the treasure of eternal life really, truly, actually belongs to you. The catch is, the catch is, and you would agree with this, is that just because one claims to have salvation doesn't mean they actually do. I mean, you would admit that, that we can profess anything we want to about ourselves, but as I've said before, the proof of the pudding of our profession is displayed in the reality of our lives. And you see, in the theology of John's letter, true, this is very important, true, authentic, saving faith in Christ is accompanied by and results in neon lights manifestations that prove it to be authentic and true. And when you take a step back and you look at John's letter as a whole, you begin to see that certain patterns begin to emerge. But he gives us a criteria. In fact, three criteria, three concrete criteria to help us see if our faith is authentic or if it is counterfeit. Things like truth, obedience, and love. In other words, if you believe truth, if you obey God's word, and you love other people, those are the signs that your faith is not a hoax, but it is authentic and real. And let's look at these criteria one at a time. They're all there in your notes. Criterion number one, authentic faith is verified by sound doctrine. Authentic faith is verified by sound doctrine. In other words, the first foundational question to ask when trying to determine the reality of your faith is not how do you feel or even what were your experiences, but what do you believe? Because you realize theology and doctrine are not the optional electives of the Christian life, but are the very foundation of the Christian life. Doctrine is the fabric out of which the Christian life is made. I mean, without it, there's no such thing as authentic Christianity. That what you believe determines where you will spend eternity. And thanks to these false teachers who called into question some of the most sacred doctrines of the Christian faith, John is compelled throughout this letter to define exactly what it is that we must believe. And it's all there, all throughout this letter. Gun to the head shoot me dead, kinds of things we must believe and upon which we build our very lives. Things like the Trinity and God's glorious perfections, it's there. Things like the matchless supremacy and authority of the word of God, it's there. 
Things like the depravity of man and man's horribly fallen condition. Things like the saving work of redemption in Christ. The sovereign work of grace in the soul. The treasure of salvation available by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's all there all throughout this letter. Things you must believe. Things upon which you stake your eternity. The question is, do you know what you believe this morning? about absolutely everything. What I mean is, do you value theological depth and precision and clarity? Do you see it as part of your identity as a Christ follower? And even, get this, essential to Christian love. That you always be expanding in your knowledge of doctrine and theology. Do you see as part of what it means to glorify God, to surrender and yield what God has spoken in the text? Do you feel the weight of the fact that if ideas have consequences, theology has eternal consequences, and that the most important question of your life is, what does the text say? Because you understand the issue for John is not is not theology as a theoretical game to play, but that if your faith is authentic and real, it will always be verified by truths that you can see from the pages of Scripture. Criterion number two. Authentic faith is vindicated by obedience to the word. Authentic faith is vindicated by obedience to the word. And this is a massive deal for John, and this should be a massive deal for us. Because again and again and again, John makes explicit, he makes the explicit connection that faith, if it is real and authentic, is tangible. The salvation is visible. That if you know and belong to Christ, that true life change and transformation is absolutely inevitable. That if we profess fellowship with God, if we are born again and saved by grace, that there should be the highly imperfect but gradually increasing evidence in our lives that validates our claims. It's exactly what John said in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Do you remember that? It's a staggering text. Listen to what he says. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him but does not do his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever should keep his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now I get that's a jarring text. And, and even on the surface, maybe seems to be a little harsh and heavy-handed. But you remember, you remember there were people. Dangerous and deceived people who had crept into these churches who bragged about these grandiose experiences, mystical experiences with God, and yet they lived as though holiness and obedience were optional. It's great if you got it. It's fine if you don't. And John takes the soft truth and cuts through the bone of that bad theology and without any frills or gimmicks simply says, that's not true. 
as a lie. Because imperfect though it may be, authentic faith is tangible. Authentic salvation, John says, displays itself in highly imperfect but gradually increasing conformity in obedience to the word of Christ. And where that does not exist in someone's life, their faith isn't real. And again, the whole letter, John makes it so clear. He's not saying that we don't struggle or sin if we're saved. Rather, his point is, if we're truly saved, we don't persist in sin. We don't live in sin. We don't loiter in sin. We don't have habits and patterns of sin that we knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. That we don't live our lives in casual, nonchalant disregard of the word of Christ. And the question is, do you see any of that in your life? Is your faith tangible? Is your salvation visible? Can you see the palpable evidence of authentic life change and transformation? And again, I'm clear. John's clear. No one's talking about sinless perfection here. No one means that. I'm not asking if you never battle with lust or greed or anger or pride. I'm not asking you if you have to repent all the time for sinful things that you think or do or say because you should be doing that. What I'm asking is, do you see willful, ongoing patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? I'm asking, do you live in casual, nonchalant disregard of the word of Christ? Or, however slow and painful it may be, and it is always slow and painful, can you see little by little Little by little, the word of Christ carving you into the image of Christ. Criterion number three. Authentic faith is validated by loving others. Authentic faith is validated by loving others because talk is cheap. Is it? And we could say whatever we want about our experiences about our history, about our conversion story, about how we feel inside. But you see, it's loving other people in the way that John describes that is the supernatural validation of authentic, effectual faith. I think more than any other biblical writer, John makes the connection that the proof of life is love. That regeneration results in radical affection, that a life of self-denying, others serving Christ, imitating love is the undeniable evidence that we have been awakened and saved by sovereign grace. And you can see it all throughout what John says, I mean, like fish in a barrel, just shoot anywhere in this letter and you're going to find John saying something about love. For instance, chapter two, verses nine through 11, listen to what John says. Listen to what he says, love and hate reveals about the condition of your soul. He says, the one who says they are in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 
The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What is he saying here? What is the point here? The point is love and hate always tell the truth. Love and hate, a life of love or habits of hate, always reveal the spiritual realm to which you belong, be it the realm of darkness or the realm of light. And by the realm of darkness, he means spiritual death. And by the realm of light, he means eternal life. I mean, according to Apostle John, the, the most telling way to tell which realm you belong, one of the most tangible signs that always tells the truth about whether our salvation is counterfeit or if it is legitimate is if we have sacrificial love and affection for other people, and in particular, the very people saved and sitting in your very congregation. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 14. Listen carefully. He says, we know, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. That's a shocking statement. What John just said is that loving the brothers, that is the church, those predestined by the Father, those purchased by the Son, just as we ourselves have been, that loving them is the evidence that we have passed out of darkness into life, which means, which means John is saying that love for other people, love for other believers is the proof that God has raised us from the dead. And again, you, you remember what it is about love that makes it so profoundly supernatural, authentic, biblical, Christ-exalting love is to find your highest joy in helping other people find their highest joy in Christ. Authentic biblical love is to make tangible for people the glory and beauty of God through word-centered care and affection for the needs of other people, and in particular for the very people sitting in your very church. That's why John spends two and a half chapters out of a five-chapter letter talking about love as the proof of life. That authentic, saving faith in Jesus Christ results in authentic love for other people because authentic biblical love cannot be faked or forged, or at least faked or forged for very long. The question is, can, can you see this particular proof of life in your life? Can you see this? Put it this way. Can you, can you start to own the spiritual growth of other people in this church as your highest priority? Can you begin to feel a sense of affection and weighty responsibility for one another's holiness and perseverance firm until the end? Because that's exactly what John and the Bible has in mind when it talks about love for other people. And so that, those are the kinds of things that help, that help us know, that help confirm if we do in fact have eternal life, truth, obedience, and love. 
There should be the accompanying effects in some measure if our faith is authentic and real. And because and, and, again, you understand that assurance of salvation isn't found in a vacuum. Assurance, knowing that we have eternal life, must be corroborated by ever-increasing evidences, manifestations of truth, obedience, and love. The question is, can you see any of that in your life? I'm not asking because I doubt you. I'm asking because if the aged apostle were here, he would make us interrogate our souls just as he has done the entirety of this letter. I think if the apostle John were here, he would say, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure that you're born again by the living God? Because although you might be Christian in name, in culture, in background, in upbringing, in religious preference, you might be missing the very thing that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, namely a new heart from God that loves Christ as the treasure of the soul. The question is, is that the kind of faith that you possess? And that brings us to simple glory number three. Simple glory number three, the entity of faith. The entity of faith in whom are we called to believe, that's the question. In whom are we called to believe? In whom are we to believe to gain access to eternal life? And John tells us exactly who it is. And we know who it is. We know that it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But notice, notice very curiously how it is that John describes Christ. Verse 13. These things I wrote to you who believe in, notice, the name of of the Son of God, that you would know that you have eternal life. That's very interesting to me. Isn't, isn't it interesting to you that out of all the ways that John could define and identify Christ as the object of our faith, that he chooses to identify him as the Son of God? To me, it seems a little weird, seemed a little weird at first because that title, the Son of God, seems like the one that's the most opaque to us, meaning that for whatever reason in the 21st century West, the Son of God title for Christ is the one most ambiguous and hard to understand. I mean, you think about it, in the pinnacle apex verse that gives the purpose of the entirety of the letter. Why call Jesus the Son of God when you could call something a little more graspable, like the Lamb of God, or like the Messiah, like he did in chapter 2, or the Savior of the world, like he did in chapter 4? I mean, why call him the Son of God when there's all these other Christological flavors to choose from? And I'll tell you why, but first let's take this a phrase at a time. Because like any other magic grow capsule, there's more here than meets the eye. These are all in your notes. First, I want you to notice the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. Because notice that very inconspicuous word that John uses there, namely the word in. In. You must believe in the name of the Son of God. The question is, what does the word in even mean? Maybe a better way to ask it is, what is the function of the word in. What does it do? I'll tell you what it does. The word in has a limiting effect. It has a narrowing function. In other words, in limits the realm of possibilities and options of how to gain eternal life down to just one 
option, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He alone is the exclusive source of eternal salvation. In him alone is eternal life. Outside of him is only the wrath and justice that we so deserve. I mean, Acts 4.12, back me up on this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The conversation is over. And yet, and yet, I get it. The world has always complained, haven't they? The Christianity is so narrow. It's just so narrow. People hate the fact that the Bible says there's only one way to be saved. And yet, although the Bible proclaims loudly that Christ alone is the way of salvation, the Bible never restricts who's allowed to believe it. This is for everyone to believe. All people have equal, undeserved access to the treasure of salvation through Jesus Christ. That is hardly narrow. That is shockingly generous. Don't you see, even though God doesn't need us and is, in fact, estranged from us because of our God-belittling sins, he has made a way for us to drink at the river of his delights through faith in his Son. And I just want you to know, if you have not If you don't know Christ, if you don't know him today, this morning is the time to bow to the king in thirsty submission. But second, there's the totality of Christ. We looked at the exclusivity of Christ, now the totality of Christ. Because did you notice, John didn't just say, he didn't just merely say, believe in the name of, or believe in the Son of God, gave it away here. He said that you must believe in the name of the Son of God. What do you mean name, John? What are you talking about? Well, believe it or not, there is a theology of name in the Bible. There's there's a name theology in the Bible. Did you know that? In other words, this is wonderfully complex. This is loaded. John, get this, he is actually building on centuries of Old Testament theology where that word name, get this, was used as a substitute and a synonym for Yahweh himself and everything that makes him who he is. He made his name dwell in the temple, the Old Testament says. He made a name for himself when he killed the Egyptians and delivered his people. Exodus 14. He revealed his name to Moses. Exodus 34. Do you remember that? Proverbs 18.10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. Ezekiel 20. Israel defiled his name with idols. Ezekiel 36. He was going to save Israel and bring them back to the land and restore them for the sake of his name. Jeremiah 10, 6, there is no one like you, Yahweh. You are great, great is your name in might. And on and on it goes, hundreds of references to the name. And get this, eventually rabbis and even Jews to this day do not even pronounce the name Yahweh, instead They refer to him simply as Hashem, the name. So when when John says to believe in the name of the Son of God, he 
he means that as Yahweh, you were to embrace and submit to everything that Christ is and everything that he revealed himself to be. This is an all or nothing deal. The question is, have you done so? Have you yielded to all that Christ is and all that he has revealed himself to be? Because as a kid, I had this weird insect-making kit. In other words, I, you can make your own squishy bugs out of rubber. You mix up the solution, you pour it into this pre-made mold, and you can make a roach or a spider or a beetle or a giant ant, which I absolutely hate bugs more than anything else. I don't know why I played with this thing at all. Gross fascination, I guess. But the point is, the point is, terrible illustration. The point is, Christ is not a goo that you can pour into your pre-made mold of what you want him to be. He's never going to conform to your expectations. He's never going to permit you to set the terms or define the relationship or negotiate what it means to follow him. No, Christ will be dealt with on his terms or not at all. It says all or nothing. You are either for him or you are against him. He will either be your highest treasure or he will be your enemy. He will be your highest allegiance or he will be your judge. You either give up all or you lose everything. and believe in the Son of God, you gain everything. There's nothing to lose here. So John displays the exclusivity of Christ, the totality of Christ, and finally, finally, here we go. Here is the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What does this mean? What does it mean? Because I don't know about you, but for years I tripped over the shoelaces of that Son language. Because it kind of seemed to, on the surface, sort of make it sound like that Christ was something less than God. Something less than God, or, but more than man. What does it mean exactly that, that he is the son? I'll have you know that at least half a dozen places in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called the son. 2 Samuel 7. Twice in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Proverbs 30, Isaiah 9, Daniel chapter 7. And every time the Messiah is described as the Son, he is also described with divine attributes and perfections, which means to be called the Son is a profoundly Trinitarian statement. To be the Son does not make Christ inferior or less than the Father. Rather, the Son of God is a title of deity. He is God the Son, equal to the Father in worth and value and glory and deity. But as the Son, he was sent by the Father as a man to fulfill the plan of salvation planned and designed before time began. The question is, this is very important for us, the question is, do you see this morning that Christ is so much more than the doorman or the gatekeeper of our salvation? 
What I mean is, do you see that Christ is and must remain the enduring treasure of our salvation? Do you see that our involvement with the Son of God does not end at when we first obtain salvation, but that he is the all-satisfying center of our salvation, that he is the goal, that he is the prize, that he is the treasure, that he is the fountain of living waters to the soul? Don't you see? All that the Son is and all that the Son accomplished is what we were created to need and enjoy forever. Everything you could possibly need or ask for in this life is all centrally located in one person, namely the God who became man for us and for our salvation. And so the implication is, the exhortation is, grow in Christ. Be exhilarated with Christ through the word. I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Father's very will for your life, according to John 17, 26, is that you would love the Son as he loves his Son. That you would feel about the Son the way he feels about his Son. And the only way that's going to happen is if you put your eye to the telescope of the Bible and you behold the galaxies of the sun's perfections. You just go to John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1, and you just spend a month or two being blown away by the glory of the sun. Because understand this, the secret to a thriving soul is not to think less deeply about the Son, but to push yourself deeper than ever into who Jesus Christ is. Which brings us finally to simple glory number four. Simple glory number four, the felicity of faith. The felicity of faith, which asks the question, what is, what is the satisfying outcome of our faith? And, and by felicity, I, I don't merely mean happiness. Rather, I mean eternal and enduring happiness as the fulfillment that, of everything we were created to enjoy forever, otherwise known as eternal life. One last time, verse 13. John says, these things I wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did he write this? So that you would know that you have eternal life. Again, there it is. The reason I put pen to paper, John says, is so that you would know that you have eternal life. You have it. It's yours. It is certain. It's guaranteed. It's irrevocable. It's Paid for by Jesus Christ. And yet, the question that we got to get to the bottom of is, eternal life, meaning what? And what does John mean by life here? Because, because, get this, depending on what he and the Bible means by life, determines whether it's eternally worth having or not. And you don't miss the staggering implication in the text. The very fact that John and the Bible says that we need life implies that all people were born without it. I mean, all people live, of course, absolutely. But they don't really live. 
not in the sense for which they were originally created. Something's missing. Something's lost here. Something's broken here. Something is catastrophically wrong here. And we know what's wrong. We know exactly what it is that's wrong because of the cancer and the curse and the virus of sin. We are but shadows of what we were designed to be. And what, pray tell, were we designed to be? This. People in paradise, on the planet, who prize God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is forever. That is what we were designed to be. That is what we were made for. But you know, because of the, our first parents, the paradise and pleasure was lost. Paradise was lost because of our first parents in the garden at the beginning. And so that means whatever John means and whatever the Bible means by life, get this now, is the restoration and is the reinstallation of what we were originally intended to be. And when you put this together with eternal, we discover that eternal life is not merely living a really long time or merely avoiding death, but rather it is life how we were created to live, which is to have the triune God as the treasure of the soul. That's eternal life. But let me back up and be a little theological here. Because our ideas about eternity are a little squishy and non-specific to our great detriment. You see, the eternal life in Christ, which is fully, completely, 100% ours by faith, that eternal life is actually experienced in three distinct phases. Three phases of eternal life. Phase one is the now. Phase two is the kingdom. Phase three is the eternal state. Phase one, the now. The now of eternal life is now. The treasure of salvation paid for in full. It is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. And through in Christ, through the word, we experience a measure of the pleasure that is ours as we labor on a mission in a fallen world. That is phase one. Phase two of eternal life is the kingdom. When King Jesus returns to the planet, this planet and brings paradise back to earth and makes all things be the way they ought to be. Phase three of eternal life after the thousand year reign of the king when he has abolished all rule and authority. First Corinthians 15, 20 and 21 says that he will hand the kingdom back to his God and father and he will abolish death forever, and sin will be no more, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth, and we will all live as they say, happily ever after. That's eternal life. And that's a simple glory, isn't it? Super simple, easy to understand on the surface, but in reality, it is glorious and profound. The last question of the morning is, okay, then, what does the simple glory of eternal life produce in our lives? 
What does that produce in our lives? And I close with this. Because if you think about what this produces in our lives, it is absolutely astonishing, isn't it? I mean, if this is real, if eternal life is true, if this is really a real thing, and it is, then that means, get this, that sin is illogical and fear is irrational. Right? If eternal life is real and true, then sin is illogical and fear is irrational. The passing pleasures of sin, whatever they are for you, totally illogical in light of the paradise to come. <coughs> fear of COVID, Democrats, or death, totally irrational in light of eternal life and the age to come. The question is, what are your illogical sins and your irrational fears? What are your illogical sins and your irrational fears? In other words, what are the things that make zero sense in your life in light of the age to come? Afterwards, I'll be right up here and I'll share with you everything that makes zero sense in my life. If you want to hear them, I'll, I'll share them with you because I've got them too. Because don't you see, when we live with the light of eternity on our face, we witness to the world that there is something to live for. We witness to the world that there is something worth giving everything up for. We witness to the world that there is a matchless God who governs everything that comes to pass. And no matter what it is that happens to us in this life, we are always safe in his sovereign omnipotent hands. 1 John 5, verse 13. A magic grow capsule of holy truth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess our illogical sins and our irrational fears. We see it, Lord. We, we feel burdened by the inconsistency in our lives. The great Grand Canyon chasm of what we believe and how we live. And Lord, if we're being honest, we always feel a sense of guilt for that. A twinge of pain in our conscience. And yet, Lord, we are so grateful that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. That if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who stands at your right hand and advocates for us. Oh, do we give thanks to you for our advocate in whom we stand blameless and even upright and yet, Father, you have the audacity to reward us for everything that we've done in your name.
What can we say other than you are generous? You are gracious. And we're so grateful. And we long to see more power, more of your power in our lives. We long more and more to be used as an instrument to advance your global cause until we all sing in unison, worthy is the Lamb. And it's in his name we pray.